Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. If you live anywhere near Seattle or can easily get here for whatever reason, you might want to grab a ticket to the inaugural mini conference in person Saturday, March 25th here in Seattle. There are only about 20 tickets left right now. The theme of the day is what's next. And I can now announce that we will have the entirety of the sarcastically named Big Five group, that is Trip, Sari, Sarah, and Myron here in attendance, as well as Tom Ord, Tony Jones, producer Josh, will be doing a live Generation Gap Culture Hour episode, we'll be doing a live Big Five panel of some sort, and it's going to be a really, really great time. Lunch is provided, as well as coffee and snacks, and we will all go out in some kind of maybe organized fashion into the various breweries of the Ballard neighborhood of Seattle after the event. There is a link to the event in the show notes. Grab a ticket now because it's going to sell out and pretty quickly, but I'd love to see you there. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Trip Fuller, Diana Butler-Bass, thank you guys for joining me so much on You Have Permission. Woo! I'm glad I finally <laughs> get back on the real feed, Dan. Not just the patron feed. Yeah. For losers. No, just kidding. I know. I had to bring one of my friends that are cooler than me on your podcast. Then you're like, you can come back on if Diana's coming. Not at all how it went. I'm glad to be here. So 
And uh, this is my first time, so so I have no idea what's coming at me. <laughs> I think we are overdue to, to have you here, Dana. So I'm, I'm glad that we've found a good reason to do it. Let me tell you guys what that reason is, listeners. So Tripp and Diana are starting a Lenten reading group that starts basically around the time this – I'm not sure exactly what day this starts. That comes out probably two days after this comes out, Ash Wednesday, which is February 22nd, correct? Okay. So that's when it starts. It's called Empty Altars, American Saints in a Cynical Age. I think it is a very, very cool idea for a Lenten reading group. And so I'm encouraging listeners to consider joining that group. That's what we're doing. We're going to talk about the sort of major questions behind that group. And it's a pay what you want model, right? That's what you always do, Trip. Yes. So people can pay whatever they can afford to do a six-week course, basically. Uh, but no less than zero. No, and no more than, than a million dollars. <laughs> those are I the have limits. standards. Yeah. yeah, those are the limits. And the first class is the Monday after Ash Wednesday, at the first week of Lent. So, okay, cool. Uh, if you join, you'll be able to access stuff and in, in the group and interact and things. But the first live stream, the live streams are on Mondays each week, and then the videos and audio are up after. You can kind of go at your own pace. Or last year, there was a probably thirty or forty churches that you know watched the videos and the discussion groups. It, it's flexible for your nerdy engagement, be it solo or with friends. It starts on February 27th. And uh, Tripp and I did a class together last year on Jesus. And how many people came, Tripp? Uh, I think it was like 4,800 or something. It was, oh my gosh. it was crazy. That's insane. And last time we were like, you should go read our books. And, and they did. So this time we're going to have different selections from all the different American saints and such in it. And then each week we'll introduce a different figure, talk about it, and then how it is. How, how do those saints even function, thinking of all the questions and things in uh, American religion, culture, politics, and such. So, The one thing I will say to listeners, I'm just pitching this a little bit harder than I normally would, oh, is that Tripp and I have worked out a sort of a backdoor deal here that he is going well, to fly that him. sounds illicit. I know. Okay, okay. All right, all right, all right, all right. A uh, couple of bears on Zoom here, but we are. Uh, Trip is going to cover his own airfare out to the first. You have permission in person event next month, March twenty fifth. Trip's going to be there, which means we're going to have the entire group that is sarcastically self identified as the Big Five. I have to be clear that is a psychology personality test joke, not a statement about our worthiness. So all of us will be there, Trip, Myron, Sarah, Sari, and myself, as well as Tony Jones and producer Josh. So I'm hoping that enough of you will join Diana and Trip's class, and I think you will after you hear about it, that can cover his airfare, and it's a win-win-win for everybody. So that's that's uh, that was Trip's idea for doing this, which was a good idea, but then I looked at the page for the reading group and started thinking about the concept and realized that I wanted to do a full episode about this because it's such an interesting, there's a lot of interesting angles here that we're, let's, let's get into them. So first angle is this, I have been reading a little bit about awe because this psychologist, Dasher Keltner has finally put out this big book summarizing like 10 to 15 years of research he's done with the greater good Institute in Berkeley. And mm -hmm. One of the things he was recently talking with Krista Tippett on on being about this, uh, 2,000 plus qualitative interviews across 20 plus languages. So this is cross-cultural, uh, a lot of just hours and hours of, of uh, data here. And what he says, the most common producer of awe 
in a human life is, quote, an experience of other people's kindness, courage, strength, or overcoming. He also used the term moral beauty to describe the way that we perceive these stories of other people. And I was literally listening to this like the day before I talked with Tripp about this whole idea. Now, these people that he's talking about in his research, they're not all necessarily saints and heroes. In fact, he's kind of emphasizing that they can be everyday people. But psychologically, the principle has got to be the same, if not extremely similar, that it is through hearing, imbibing, relating to stories of people doing great things, doing, you know, highly moral, self-sacrificial, whatever, that this is a major, major source of awe and of kind of our brush with transcendence. And so I just kind of wanted to start there with kind of like the psychology, because that's often my lens. Dana, I don't know if you have anything to add there or trip. Well, interestingly enough, uh, you're the third person to mention that interview to me when I've told them about this class. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, and it doesn't really entirely surprise me because my, what I studied before I started writing all the books I write is a history of Christianity. So this, this is really sort of my, my bailiwick is my area. I love history and I've loved it my whole life. And one of the reasons I've loved it is exactly what you're talking about is that in some way, hearing the stories, I, I've always referred to it as making friends with people from the past or mm. people who, I wish I knew who might be alive right now, but, you know, I, I have no access to one-to-one. But you can make friends with people because you admire their their stories. You admire their courage mm-hmm. or what have you. And what that does is it lifts us um, as well. And I wrote some about awe and gratitude in my book, Grateful, because that research from Greater Good Center was just beginning to come to public attention. And one of the things that they talked about in an early stage of that research was that awe and gratitude were related. Yeah, And so there is this actual practice of thanksgiving, of being grateful, that hooks in to this particular way of being inspired and that both of them wind up being personally sort of efficacious you know they that they help us as individuals but the other thing that the early research was pointing to is that people who had a really high sense of transcendence and all were also really uh, very committed to social justice Hmm. And so I thought that was fascinating. So that all isn't just about you feeling good or you getting your jollies, but it's about moral courage that inspires us to go out and do likewise. And so and if I think that that's a big part of what Tripp and I are really about with this class is we want people to be able to link up with a bunch of stories and make new friends with people across the spectrum of faith in America. And in doing so, be inspired for healing in our own lives, but then also to be able to do something about it. And so so I'm pretty excited about this project. Mm-hmm. Really quick on gratitude, because you bring it up, I find that in this season of life where I have so much less religious certainty. I still have religious practice, 
but I don't have that kind of, I'm not under the sacred canopy anymore to use that language that gratitude's doing a lot more heavy lifting. It's something that you can like, for instance, with clients who are not religious at all, you can still talk about gratitude, gratitude, sort of like it flows into the crevices all around the human experience and different identities and different spiritual and religious practices and lack thereof. And uh, I'm kind of in awe, frankly, uh, of gratitude as just a phenomenological reality that our consciousness has gotten to the point where we can do that, that we can, you know, we can think about our thoughts, we can think about our lives, we can sort of find the things for which we are grateful, we can focus on them, and then that almost is like radiates through our mind and through our lives and our conscious awareness in a way that I, I just think is... It's it's so cool, and it, and it makes me think that no matter where I end up sort of explicitly religiously, this is why I will always be interested in at least spirituality, because it is this kind of these higher these higher virtues, this this higher connectivity with other beings. And and it, it doesn't just have to be people. You can have gratitude for trees. You can have gratitude for, you know, all of it. That's just been striking me recently. Yeah, it's one of my favorite topics, obviously. I've done an awful lot of talking about it in the last several years. But one of the things that kicked off my interest in gratitude was that I I want to know what kinds of spiritual practices, what kinds of theological languages, what kinds of stories um, motivate people in a multicultural, religiously pluralistic society. And that is, how can we find goodness, beauty, and justice if we don't have the exact same kinds of theological stories that our ancestors used to find that from? And so, while I was thinking about that several years ago, the idea of gratitude being a spiritual practice that transcends boundaries and that we can come at from a variety of different theological or even non-religious perspectives, and that it might be a kind of a spiritual and moral practice that we can take with us into whatever we're creating for the future. So, I, I actually love gratitude for those reasons, too. And I think it really fits with this project. There's a kind of a sensible flow of my own work over several books because cynicism, which is the part of the theme that we're working with, erodes gratefulness is that it's very hard for people who are cynical to be grateful. Um, and the, the converse is true as well. It's, it's very hard for people who discover deep levels of gratitude to embrace a kind of cynicism that chews away at our sense of groundedness in the world. I think that gratitude is part of the pathway toward a more hopeful kind of post-religious America. Mm -hmm. And um, that getting past the cynicism. But right now we've got tons of cynicism and, and there's good reason too. So many of our saints and heroes have just been taken down, knocked down, yeah. Uh, yeah. moved off of pedestals that we don't know where to turn to find those inspiring stories. And we don't know for whom or for what we should be grateful right now. It's very hard mm -hmm. to find a pathway towards that. And so Tripp and I are just going to open that up. This is a question for both of you. 
that really came up in that exchange. One of the philosophers I love a lot at thinking about the task of being human in the present is Emmanuel Levinas, who is a, a Jewish philosopher, but coming out of like the post-structuralist tradition, right? And we don't really know how to talk about the big other or God. And then like, how do we talk about the demand put upon us to live a good life and to think about justice and such. And one of his observations is that for uh, for people who the word God is hard to muster, the face of the other can function in that way. Hmm. Uh, and he talks about it functioning in a number of ways that I kind of heard in your talk. Like one is the face of the other, like calls out for recognition, for justice, for dignity, for respect, these kinds of things. And so the other calls out a demand upon your life that you recognize their otherness in your own living. And the other side of the other that he points out is that when we tell stories of people's lives, those stories make demands on us to say, do not say you're less than you have. Do not act like you can't be responsible in your own agency. You may not be, insert the saint or the hero, or for him, you may not be Abraham who can say yes to welcoming three strangers coming over the hill, but you can recognize that at the very heart of that hospitality that Abraham practiced is deciding that the other, the stranger, is someone worth risking letting in, not protecting yourself, killing the strangers that are coming. You see, and I and I think uh, he, he uses that notion of other as a way of generating that depth dimension that I, I, I would use the word awe as a good way of getting it, right? Like the experience of other people's character says there's more potential in you than you may recognize. And then when you see the other in a situation of just injustice, then you go, where am I contributing to this and how do I take responsibility and get invested? All of those things are when we allow the other to animate our depth dimension and cynicism cuts us off from that. We like to explain away the other situation, maybe give them responsibility for insert their situation or We can do it biochemically. We can do it systemically. The left and the right have different ways of justifying a cynicism. But what it ultimately does is protect the way the other can make a claim upon us or the other can 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 lay claim to the potential within us. And I think that like recognizing how good I am. And this came out of Diana and I's back and forth, um, cynical jousting about the scene (laughs) and and American religion and politics is to go like, no, no, no. We like, we try to talk ourselves off that by telling each other stories of people, a part of Christ's body in American church history that then I'm like, Oh, you know what? I should probably go tell that. I should go tell the story of Walter Rauschenbusch to Elgin tonight Mm -hmm. because He said something was possible in the face of the other, you know, in the middle, a horrible economic situation where workers are being harmed. Children are being forced to work in in the early 20th century, and they're his congregants. And he decides the gospel has something to say about exploitative industrial working situations. Anyway, so I I feel like that that connection you you drew in the way you all played it out is, is kind of exciting. Was there a question in there for us, Trip? No, no, no. I want to know if you if you saw the connection. Like in my head, mm. I you, you, like you're a psychologist, you're a church historian, psychologist in training, and uh, I thought of a a French phenomenologist and said, oh, and the notion of the other, and it made me think of it because gratitude is a place we facilitate conversations of meaning when we like plenty of other people 
don't know if you can put G-O-D next to each other all the time. I haven't talked to you, Trip, since the before I was away this past weekend. And um, I think this example works right with the class. And also, I think this will be with Dan's interests as well. And it certainly fits with all. I think it's really wrong when we consider all just simply being a positive emotion Mm -hmm. in the sense that Mm -hmm. we're going outside and you see a beautiful sunset and it's like a hallmark card and oh my gosh it speaks to your heart and something happens where you become healed or saved or find some level of mystery all takes us towards transcendence and and transcendence i don't think of transcendence as being up or out or beyond us transcendence is being able to see the horizon in a new way it's being able to look out and see what is at a distance Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden it clears in such a way that our whole field of vision is reoriented Mm -hmm. so with that that. in sort of mind this past weekend i was in alabama and you know alabama is a really difficult place i have a lot of good friends who live down in alabama and mississippi but they'll be the first to admit it, that it's really hard. It's hard politically. It's hard not to be cynical. It's hard to stay hopeful. It's a really just a very difficult environment to live mm-hmm. in. But my my hosts, they asked me what I wanted to do. And I said there was only one thing other than preaching my sermon and giving some lectures that I really wanted to do. And that was to go to the National Memorial to Justice and Peace, which is a.k.a. the lynching memorial yeah. in Montgomery. Have either of you been there? No, oh. not, not in Alabama. Oh, my gosh. I have to just, I, I, I almost, a, a woman who's put millions of words in the world, and I almost have no words to describe whatever happened to me this weekend. But this helps, and it moves, I think, our conversation along. The... Memorial is constructed on the top of a hill that overlooks the old slave marts in Montgomery. And the way that the monument works is that there are these gigantic monoliths that they have hanging from the ceiling of the memorial. And each monolith has like the name of a county and then lists all of the victims, all the people who were lynched in that county. And so I'm I'm wandering through this incredibly heartrending piece of architecture and there's this monolith that catches my eye it was from Georgia I think it was Calhoun County in Georgia and it said three people who were murdered on the exact same day uh, uh and the names were Emma Mike, M-I-K-E, Lily Mike, and then Unknown. And they all had the same date. I think it was December 1st, 1884. And I just stared at that. And it was, you know, two women's names and then this unknown name on on all the same day. And I thought, what in the world is that story? And later on, after walking through this monument that is the most moving place of public art and architecture I have ever been. Mm -hmm. You go to the museum 
which is right down the street. And the museum is this very interactive place that tells you some of the stories about the people up on the hill and also introduces you to ideas like mass incarceration and how that's connected to slavery and lynching. And so I'm wandering through there and lo and behold, there's a plaque about Emma and Lily Mike and that that unknown person who winds up being their grandmother. The situation of the lynching was that Calvin Mike was the father of two little girls who are six and four, Emma and Lily. And he voted in the 1884 election. And because he voted, the Klan came to his house, took his mother, who's the unknown, and the grandmother of these, I guess they just don't know her name, and the grandmother and the, of these two little girls, and they, they lynched them all. Not Calvin. They, they, they kept him alive. Well, he could do more work. That's the cynical explanation, I guess, for keeping him alive. I mean, it's, oh, I mean, it's awe is also the root of awful, right? Like right. you're, you're right that awe is not always good, that it, it comes into these stories. I mean, I, I think about, I, I've, I've long been drawn to like learning about and consuming stuff about the Holocaust and I don't know, maybe that's why I became a therapist. Maybe that's why I started a religion podcast. I mean, I don't know what those reasons are. I have a lot less capacity for it now that I actually have clients. <laughs> I have found that, that like my kind of, you know, I, I can't do it as much as I used to be able to when I'm sitting with, you know, very real pain hour after hour through some of my work week. But yeah, I mean, stories like that, you know, all these, you know, just just our immense capacity for evil, for erasure, you know, and, and the, the work it takes to make room for the other. I do think, you know, to answer you trip, I do think that that's, yeah, I really like that language. One of the angles that I come to it from a psychological lens is thinking about like what it takes for someone to be able to make that room, you know, and it's a little bit of like a mm -hmm. people who are under extreme stress, people who are, you know, trapped beneath poverty, people who have serious mental health problems or are grieving, people who have suffered trauma, like that's when it's hardest to make that room. Then there's other kind of like moral, more character kind of habitual stuff that can play in there. But that what that makes me think, I don't know if these uh if these family members are in your guys's list of American saints. Cause I haven't seen the list, but I think about the family of one of the victims of the, the Charleston shooting at the, at the, um, this American Methodist, right. African Methodist, Mother Emmanuel, Mother Emmanuel church. Yeah. Yeah. The AME church mm -hmm. and how those children of that woman, you know, they're like talking to Dylan roof and they're like, we forgive you. It is one of the sort of, galvanizing moments for me in going, Oh my gosh, what do we have to learn from the black church? <laughs> like, what are we missing out on here? And to connect it to the class, I, I I'm glad that you are lifting up some stories among that community. I know some of them will be African-American 
saints or whatever we're calling them. And that was like, there are some interesting questions about like, you know, toxic forgiveness culture and, and when's it too early? And you know, what, what ends up being a erasure of the victim and all of that stuff? Great questions. But I was really moved by that. I was, that stopped me in my tracks to, to see that video and contrast it with him and like what, what led him to that moment and, and their response. I mean, I don't know. I, I should stop talking about it. There's not much to say. It's just kind of this event in American history that just flabbergasts me, basically. Part of what happened to me while I was in that museum and I saw those two little girls, you know, learn the story of those two little girls is that all of a sudden two human beings that I never knew existed before existed and they existed right there in front of me. There were no pictures of them, of course, but in effect, they existed right there in front of me with all of that pain hmm. and all of the sorrow attending that story. And so that was a, a, a sort of an example, I think, of what Trip was talking about is all of a sudden I saw an other that I never knew existed before. And all I wanted to do as a as a human being and as a mother with a daughter named Emma and everything else Ugh. was to literally hold them mm -hmm. and somehow protect them. It was a really interesting moment because it was awful to use the all language, mm -hmm. but it was also transcendent. There was all of a sudden a connection between me and two human beings that I had no yeah. idea ever lived. And they seared themselves into my memory so that I will never forget them now. And that, of course, makes me different about then how do I, what do I do with that going forward? And it also is a story that reorients us, I think, around martyrdom, because so many of us grew up in those horrible cultures where we celebrated the martyrs. Oh, lay down your life for Jesus, you know, sacrifice everything, all this sort of stuff. Now, this is a story, their story is a story of martyrdom, but martyrdom can be unwilling and martyrdom yeah. can be acts of violent injustice. It's not just somebody who's standing there saying, oh, yeah, kill me, throw me to the wild beast because I'm going to witness to, to, to Christ. But they were martyred mm -hmm. without their permission in, in a tragic way that eventually becomes part of the story of the full humanity of Black people in the United States. And so I think that this is one of the things that's going to give Tripp and I a chance to really talk about some of these very rich categories because we've become cynical about the idea of martyrs, you know, that's something we're putting away, you know, as we sort of walk away from toxic religion. But the truth of yeah. it is, is that martyrdom is a really important part of awe and transcendence of heroic stories and justice. But it's all got to be rearranged. I, I know uh, Dan obviously didn't know your daughter's name is Emma, um, but like even put like seeing the same name as your child in that story has a kind of seizing you power. Right. And I think that one of the deficits in Protestantism, when we don't have saints and it's just the Bible is the body of Christ just becomes the one or two stories we latch onto in scripture and not the body of the risen Christ in through and among us. And I think that's sad because in our culture, and this hasn't always been true, but it's definitely true 
now and for those of us in more open places it's it's in, it's toxically true that the stories we know and can rattle off about the church today are the ones that justify our jadedness and our cynicism uh, they're the ones that get clicks on tweets and in social media. They're the ones we have on the tip of our tongue when we're ready to defend our our criticism towards whatever the religious context where we have uh, a trauma and pain associated with it. That we do have stories that bind and and shape us, but so often we know so little about the history and the people who've handed on the faith to us that the things that linger are the things that justify our cynicism and jadedness. And all those things, right? I think they're complete it, we're doing a good thing by complicating altars and monuments. But is that the last word? I was describing the class to uh, a friend of mine who's a minister in the area, and she said, I'm really looking forward to it because I feel like in the last three years, I learned I have been poisoned and I have been throwing up all the ugliness that I just thought was supposed to be in my religious diet. But I wonder, I want to know if I can have a whole meal again and what would it look like to be intentional about it? And when she said that, I thought that's like a a very tactile way. But I think we all know the experience of being sick, feeling empty. And there is a time when you're sick and empty and that you're like, I don't even know what conditions would inspire me to drink water apart from not wanting to dehydrate. But then there's that day you wake up and you're like, oh, junk, I am actually hungry. And like you get the saltine and then you're like, oh, that didn't make me sick. And well, and then if you're me, you're like, I am like at a calorie deficit for the last Let's three days. Let's go straight to brisket. Yeah, or whatever. Yeah, smoked meat, you know. <laughs> Macaroni and cheese, here yeah. I come. Yeah. Uh, straight and, to comfort and, food. Yeah, yeah, well, but, but bacon in the green beans. So right, it's okay. okay. But, I, but I, I do think that like there is this sense that for good reasons, we've been serving each other a diet of just the ugliest parts and what story we have that will bind our identity as Christians who are growingly aware of the toxic and traumatic and ugly and unjust parts of our history. What is it that is worth preserving and telling and sharing and passing on? That's something I've become increasingly concerned about just as a parent. It it seems to be a crisis point right now for many who are on the margins or recently exited the church. And it's a, it's a crisis every time we're introducing another generation to the story of Christ. I'm really interested in Dan's response to what you just said, because in effect, you pointed out something I think that's really significant right now is that we're living in the age of the anti-saint. And so you think about like the big podcast, like the Mark Driscoll thing. And that's, everyone was talking about that story. And that is not a story about moral beauty. I mean, and it's not a story about courage. It's a story about just the opposite. It's a story yeah. about cowardice and complicity and narcissism. Yeah. Yeah. Narcissism. And so, so we feed ourselves that story. Everybody's talking about that story in community and everybody goes, Oh yeah, Mark Driscoll, Driscoll. Oh, he's awful. And then we cast him out. And so functionally what we seem to be doing is basically then we just scapegoat Mark Driscoll 
but we're not sort of turning around and giving ourselves a story of replacement. And so we're reenacting mm-hmm. a very violent form of Christianity, even though we pride ourselves on being the peacemakers by doing the scapegoating thing. So I, I well, think Trip and I are trying to go past that into a different kind of territory. But I'm, I'm really curious, Dan, what you think. Yeah, I want to say that I think your project is a really good one. And there really can't be enough similar projects of like at least throwing out there possible stories that could unite diverse people around it. But where I was going in my mind, I think James K. A. Smith said this recently, and I this is probably the wrong word, but it's like the age where everything is contestable, essentially. Someone listening will know the exact phrase he used or whatever. But the idea that like one of the ways you show your chops now in polite society, in educated society, is you you show everyone how good you are at problematizing the question or the topic or, you know, look, I can connect this thing to white supremacy. You don't think I'll be able to, but I'll get there, you know, or like whatever you, you, you sort of. Anything can be knocked down. Like Mother Teresa, we can knock her down. She was mean to the sisters. And maybe she was, right? I don't, the point is not that that there's not truth in those things. I mean, I'm still kind of crushed by Jean Vanier, especially with the recent report that it was worse than we thought and uh, worse than they thought even at large. You know, so those are real problems. But I think that a combination of factors at a at a global level or at least a american cultural level you know sort of the national level are both contributing to that one is this decline in religious identification so people don't show up week after week with a group of people with whom they share a bunch of basic assumptions about the world and that they can therefore find heroes even if it's only with their church friends at least they can agree that this person is a hero. You take that same energy to Twitter, you're not going to find the same kind of group coalescing yeah. around a story because the smart asses will all show you how many holes they can poke in it. And that leads me to the other factor, which is the role of social media and the algorithms and the way that, that they prioritize what helps the tech companies that own the social media platforms you know, maybe occasionally they want a story of like Damar Hamlin, the Buffalo Bills guy and the NFL rallies around him. And we do need, you know, we like stories like that, but that's not a true heroics. That's like a, a tragedy and a group of people doing a, a human thing. And, you know, that, that mm-hmm. happens every week when someone gets a cancer diagnosis around the country. But the, the true heroics, you know, you put someone, anyone anyone and any story into the national spotlight, you will have targets on their back from the far left, from the far right, from this content creator, from this piece of shit, goodwill hunting side character who wants people to think he's smart, you know, whatever. And then it's just open season. And Mm -hmm. it's not like you can at least go to your Bible study where we all more or less agree that Corey Tenboom was a hero for saving Jews from the Holocaust. If we put it on Facebook, we get the comment from our niece. Well, yeah, but then she really told that story and made money from it for decades afterward and exploited the, the Nazis or, you know, whatever, like forgiving the Nazis. find reasons to have a problem. I don't want to say find reasons 
that's dismissive. There might even be good reasons to have a problem with Corey Ten Boom. There's just also a psychological power at an individual and a group level for agreeing that Corey Ten Boom was great. Author of The Hiding mm-hmm. Place, by the way, if people don't know that. We read it in my evangelical high school and she was a big deal in, I don't know, 80s, 90s aughts. That's where my mind went. I was just going to say, so you're telling me, Dan, that moral beauty doesn't serve global capitalism? <laughs> you know what's oh, funny? Okay. In some ways, like there's there's got to be a version. I'm proud of you, Diana. No, there is. <laughs> no, there's got to be a version of capitalism that not obviously not in its purest, most profit form, but like there's a version of democratic socialist capitalism that really can coexist with moral beauty, you know, and even a lot of the stories as Americans that we tell about our country, like the way that Martin Luther King pulled from the constitution and the declaration of independence, he pulled language from it to Mm -hmm. unite Americans, even if he didn't get all of them, but you know, like that's like a fantastic use of a country's national language toward mm-hmm. moral beauty. Like it can be done. Uh, but no, when, when Facebook and Twitter are uh, calling the shots, they're not that interested in moral beauty unless it serves their bottom line, of course. Yeah. Do you think part of that, the tendency to find the part in any story being told you can tear down or associate with some ism that is genuinely problematic I often read those one way when I know the person than when I don't. Mm. I don't want to name some of our mutuals, but there's some of them that when I see that coming out and then I check in on them and talk to them, I have a different explanation in my head as to where the vitriol comes from. And one of them, and I know this is true for me, when I have been living in places or situations where I lacked the kind of friends that make most of the difficult parts of life bearable and the joys deeper, then I would like a story where no one else gets to celebrate something, be it something beautiful uh, and such. And so I think there, like when you gave that, when you mentioned, oh, like even your, your Bible study reading Tenenbaum, like, yeah, that's kind of a cute example, but what if the closest you get to deep community is that kind of inaction. Like social media gives us the possibility of attention, but it's a rather vapid replacement for genuine recognition. And if you lack the genuine recognition, which requires shared stories, uh, ongoing relationships uh, where you can both be vulnerable and you can call things out of each other, then what is it that gets you the attention is associating your critical and dismissive tone with something that valorize a stand for justice. But I don't think anyone signed up to lose deep relationships. Yeah. Diana and I were at this conference uh, about a month ago, Southern lights. And I had the same conversation with three 80 plus year olds who were at yeah. the conference. They said, I, ne- I encouraged my kids and wanted them to do like what you did, Trip. you know, did good in school and you get your degrees and move. I did not think I was encouraging them to live six hours in three different directions because they wanted to succeed. 
I didn't mm. know I was putting them in a situation where the, their career would occupy their life until 35 before they think about settling down and having children. I didn't know. See, they said I didn't know. Now, if I know the experience of being those people's kids or, or did such is I did what you said to do. And then what's happened? I feel like we were handed a playlist in a previous generation that succeeding on it uh, as the boomers handed off the reins actually deteriorated our deep relationships. We can see it in all civic participation, religion being an important one, but we see it also in political participation. Mm -hmm. So many things. Bowling and leagues, even stuff like that. The, yeah, the civic number of deep yeah. friends you have. So what is, uh, no one said, would you like to run an experiment, dear America, of what is it like to be a healthy human being if we cut the number of relationships you have that knew you before you were potty trained yeah. by 80%. Yeah. Mm. You know what I mean? That I that is why I think telling the big stories is important because as the body of Christ we have stories and such that are connected and if the only way we know how to tell stories is the kind where we're, you know, comfortable uh, replacing attention uh, for recognition, then I think it stays vapid, even if the ethical impulse behind much of it is uh, is positive. And as I think of this every time I go delete my tweets, that uh, <laughs> this is one more time to recognize I should have texted a friend instead of uh, edifying. Unsol uh, no one asked for my edification in, yeah. in my replies. So... <laughs> oh, my gosh. I don't even know kind of where to go with all of that trip, except, you know, one of the things I was thinking about was the that whole idea I was saying at the beginning is that church history over the years has enabled me to make friends with people I wouldn't mm -hmm. otherwise know. And in fact, that that was the story that I just told about these two little girls is that you know, this public memorial and this question that I had when I saw their names allowed me to reach over all these incredible boundaries and in effect make make friends with with two people I didn't know existed. And right now, what's the number that most Americans are down to having? It's like 2.7 friends or some incredibly low wow. uh, number of people that you can talk to and confide in and share stories with. And so mm -hmm. the loneliness epidemic is enormous. And the idea of a, well, I, th for me, the idea of making friends sort of differently in terms of going through history or, or thinking about these great stories of moral courage and these people, it, it begins to give us tools to make friends with real people mm -hmm. again. And I feel like we've lost a lot of our capacity to make friends with real people. Mm -hmm. And that's not a critique. I just think that's yeah. it's what's happened, and and so I'm, I don't think anybody's a moral failure because they only have two point seven friends. It, but we, how do we correct that course? Becomes a and and relink our lives with others in meaningful ways is a question I think about a lot. The most recent patron-only exclusive episode is a new Generation Gap Culture Hour. We uh, we dip our toes into the men's lifestyle <laughs> podcast genre, talking about our daily routines around rest and coffee and work. Uh, we talk about uh, the updates of the Jean Vanier case and really the kind of heartbreaking 
additional findings there and all the trouble that I'm having with that story. And then finally, we have a little bit of fun with ChatGPT, the AI chatbot, and what one of our listeners, Chris Beggs, was able to get it to say about Tony. This is a really fun episode. You can get this and any other patron episode by signing up at the Patreon page. The link is in the show notes, five bucks a month. You also have access to the patron-only Facebook group, an upcoming Discord community, which I need to get started soon here, as well as ad-free and unedited episodes of these main feed episodes or versions of these episodes, I should say. So if you want to support the show, patreon.com slash Dan Coke. Again, that link is in the notes. Back to my chat with Diana and Trip. I mean, Trip, you bringing up that it isn't just church, right? It's it's like the Robert Putnam Bowling Alone stuff from the 90s, mm-hmm. right? Like there there are these other things. It's not just social media. It's not just religious de-identification. It's, it's, uh, there are a number of forces that have made us wealthier on average, uh, but more disconnected. Like in Seattle, a couple things about moving to Seattle that, that were surprising for me. The first one, and, and I've been here now about 13 years. First one was that we, we found a church that we liked a lot. We were, we were there for a decade, 300 or so people, you know, plenty of families, a lot of people our age that can be kind of hard to find sometimes. And I went to one of our pastors who, who's now still a good friend of mine. And I was like, I, I'm looking for like a mentor. Like, I feel like I know a lot of fellow 20 somethings and a few 30 somethings this, you know, at that point, Gen Xers or whatever. And he's like, I know what you mean. There's nobody at our church. And I was like, what about this older guy? He's like, no, he's, he's not what you're looking for. What about this this older gentleman? No, I, he's like Dan. I totally hear you. Uh, there's nobody at this urban church that meets that description that will want to invest in your life. That is the kind of person you're going to respect. Uh, and I was like, wow, <laughs> you know, like a fairly thriving urban church. And that might be more about being urban as much, just as much as it is about being in the Pacific Northwest. The other thing is it didn't take long to figure out what essentially the the Pacific Northwest version of the American dream is here. And it is to make, let's update it to today's figures, $150,000 to $250,000 a year to own a home or maybe a really cool condo downtown, whatever, whatever kind of home you want, such that you don't have to talk to your neighbors ever unless you want to. And what you do to to sort of connect is you you go out on the weekends and you go into nature, and you you deck you're decked out in your Patagonia gear to show people that you know. First of all, you make enough money to afford it, and you know that it's the kind of company that's good for the world, and and that's it. So there is a moralism, and there is a, a transcendence and spirituality that is kind of endemic to this. Is by the way, white culture, which is the very predominant in, in uh, the Northwest, just a lot of white people up here, but it's really not community based. It's hyper individualistic. Maybe your family, like your family unit, you might want that unit to be tight, but that is what like the average Seattleite, in my opinion is aiming for, or seems to be aiming for. And it is a thoroughly disconnected existence. What if you get divorced? What if something happens to one of those kids you know, like, yeah, 
and and yet I I don't think it's rare. Probably people living in other urban areas in the United States would identify it. I'm, I'm sure there's also some sort of geographic variation around that. Is you, where you live? Is it different than that? I live in Washington D.C., where the famous dictum is "Want a friend? Get a dog." You know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, people are busy, right? It's a highly competitive. People are high functioning. They are successful. That's very similar here. As Can't well. trust anybody. That's Can't trust the, anybody. Mm. That's part of the culture here is that they don't know who to trust. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that you know one of the things I heard in your comments, Dan, was, uh, and this is uh, something I've actually been working on this week because I'm doing a book about this as well as uh, this class. So I've been writing the book proposal, mm. and um, you know the currents of American culture kind of lend themselves to a saintless sort of world. And Hmm. so what you just described about Seattle, I think about, you know, 19th century people getting in their wagons and heading west and the frontier yeah yeah the 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 rugged individual setting Mm -hmm. out on the frontier and you know people who literally lived in cabins and isolated places you know, thousands and thousands of miles, basically, away from any kind of stable it's a kind of sainthood, right? But it's not the kind of sainthood we're talking about. But it, <laughs> it's like this American version of like where holiness is self-reliance. Like that's the whole – that's what makes you a saint in sort of American lore, right? And then you can think about though – I mean, and this is something I, I, I'll probably do when we, we have the class is you can turn that. And so who is the great hero and saint of all that? John Muir. Mm. You know, and he did all that. Yeah. See, he did all that stuff. He developed a kind of relationship with the natural world that was connected and interdependent and actually drove him towards other people in a desire to save the the beauty of nature. Yeah. And, And so you could be that Seattle person and there's still these models of moral beauty available to you. So I, so I think that, you know, we have this idea of the rugged individual, but that can turn back on itself on a dime. And as soon as it does, Oh my gosh, all of a sudden there's a, there's a saint standing there who gives you a better way of engaging this thing that you have actually been desiring, but they're desiring it in some sense that makes life deeper and richer and more fulfilling. So I think there's that kind of piece. The other piece of this that I think is fascinating, Trip and I haven't even really talked about this yet, is that Americans are naturally iconoclastic. We love tearing down things. Mm-hmm. And I think I think about it because the Puritans, you know, several different European foundings of America, but one of them is those Puritans up there in Massachusetts, their whole shtick was destroying Anglicanism, you know, (laughs) coming to a new world, having taken windows out of churches and destroyed actual physical representations of saints and putting up these very plain buildings. And they were, they were iconoclasts at heart. And so there's this very early stream of American iconoclasm. We tear things down when we find that the how the generation before us 
wrongly conceptualized what we understand to be beautiful and just. And so, you know, I, I kind of look out now and so many people my age are terrified. Oh, look, at they're tearing down all the statues. And I think to myself, oh, wait a second. Weren't you like at Berkeley in the 70s? You know, <laughs> 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 buildings were being set on fire and banks being firebombed. And in effect, all that stuff that people who are my age or a little bit older than me were doing, when you firebombed a bank, you were attacking basically a saint of your your parents or your grandparents. You're attacking capitalism. And you're actually saying, nope, we're not going to participate in that system, that structure. That's not going to be how we live. Mm. And we're going to we're going to take that thing down and we're going to replace it with something else. And so that there's this whole ebb and flow of American history that's about generations and iconoclasm. And then also the the other act always becomes necessary. The opposite act is, what do you put up once the bank is burned down? And so I think that's kind of the place we might be in American culture right now. A lot of statues have come down. What goes up? 10 years ago, when was the Arab Spring? Is that like seven or eight years ago? I feel like I've lost track of that. But around then, yeah, Libya, Egypt, at that point, I think there was a sense that maybe this is what social media could be. Maybe social media is like uh, actually up to the task of kind of replacing whatever it's dethroning. And then I think the basically ever since that kind of failed in Egypt or whatever the sort of I don't remember exactly the timeline of the the most recent of those failures. Um, and then of course, all the spying scandals and all the, you know, all the algorithm stuff and everything that, uh, has become clear about, you know, youth and their mental health using social media. It's just been all the Zuckerberg hearings, you know, it's, it's been bad press for, for a long time now, justify justifiably so. But I think that that's where my mind went when you're talking about that iconoclasm, but that, that kind of impulse that, that we have, uh, as Americans and, oh, maybe this, maybe we will save the the world after all, because these are California companies, right? That we're exporting. And then no, like, you know, that, that turned out to be an empty promise. And yeah, I mean, the, the cynicism, the jadedness, like in a lot of sense, it's very earned, you know, like, yeah, it, it can sound like it can be tempting to sort of blame people for that, but it doesn't come in a vacuum, right? It's like, we got a lot to be jaded by. And I, and I think like Trump is maybe the most recent kind of sledgehammer uh, version of that, where it's like the only people who aren't jaded by what he did are the people mm-hmm. who like have huge horse blinders on, you know, like, so if you're, it's like if you're not jaded by that, then what are you paying attention to? And if you are paying attention, then you're jaded. And it's like, yeah, we could just elect that guy and almost twice, you know, after he told us exactly who he was. And damn, like we're calling out for a hero in the morning light. I mean, we need a hero, mm-hmm. right? Like we need, we need some of these saints. It's a dark period for, any kind of public figure doing anything that is praiseworthy or has moral beauty to it. Let, let's talk about, give, give us some from one of these stories 
Trip, I know you got to say something first, but I want to no, get there. No, no, but this is a, what you both just said is a, I have a question because this is something I've been thinking about. And I don't I don't know if this is good or not. You know how I, I just write things on post-its when I have the idea. And then if I like it later, I type it in my notes of ideas I'm working on. And the one I typed in today, I think connects the dots or you can be like, Trip, no, it doesn't. But around the, the question of iconoclastic impulse in American religion uh, one of the things that happens, right, when you when you function like a good Puritan and you clean the art off the walls of your church, and it's it, the only thing that is spoken is the gospel and it's proclaimed. You know these mm-hmm. kinds of things. You narrow, narrow down. Yeah. Um, is it sets up for American religion different than a lot of the rest of the West, even like within the same denominations, is that we tend to relate. Uh, with our religious identity as boundary policing. And I think part of it is because there's only one real narrative being told, and it is being told in a context where we have shared interpretations. In what is a boundary functioning like? It is a fixed and settled, absolute well-defined thing. And then part of your identity and this with a boundary is keeping it pure. And and I think the part of the temptation – when you get jaded and cynical is in to tear it down and walk away. And so here was the image I had thinking about the class. I think kind of addresses this is we need to draw a distinction between the boundary of belief and a horizon of belief and horizons mark the end of your vision. But when you take one more step, that boundary changes. So if you move in a belief system, uh, the boundaries don't change, but if you move in a horizon, your situation changes, your horizon expands mm-hmm. and changes yeah. and your own experience and knowledge then enrises your horizon. And when you have narrowed the number of stories you tell, the policing, the number of identities you have, if the only things you can even tell are the tear down things, then you don't have an expanding horizon of faith. You have a pillaging of the boundary. And I think part of the gift of reflecting on our history, honest about its brokenness and its baggage, but looking to tell saints is what would it be like where our identity as followers of Christ and wrestling with our citizenship in America and involves telling the stories so that it is about an expanding horizon versus a, like a settled boundary. And I thought, I like it, and then that. when you threw the iconoclasm thing in there, I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. What what happens when you tell stories, when you have the uh, the heroes of the faith that you look up to and wrestle with? It does what we've been talking about, right? Like it calls out of you and it calls into you. And anyway, so. Well, that actually, that links back into all. Yeah. Uh, and Trip, you just gave a perfect way of thinking about a really important story about American iconoclasm. And that is, okay, so the Puritans come to the to Massachusetts and they set up what they think is the pure, perfect society that is going to be a city set upon a hill. Mm-hmm. And so they've taken down all the statues. They've gotten rid of all of the saints. They have these the pure church. They have what they think is the pure membership. They have completely stark environments. Uh, no Christmas, nothing, you know, no, nothing popish. And what happens is they, so they set up a whole new set of boundaries that in effect become new icons. Mm-hmm. And one of the boundaries they set up is that they're, they're in charge of the state. 
is that these Puritans are also the guardians of the secular environment. They've tried to make a governor and a pastor, but really these two things are really very interconnected. And so they're Mm -hmm. really creating a theocracy. Mm -hmm. And what do you get? You get a boundary pusher. You get Roger Williams. And I know Mm -hmm. that, you know, he's he's one of you like your homeboys as a Baptist. (laughs) So you get a Roger Williams who comes in and says, hey, you guys, you have you've just basically set up another idol. And so this is Mm -hmm. the way we're going to do it. And so out of that creates this this conflict where I think that Roger Williams presses them towards a different horizon of faith, argues that they're that they haven't they aren't real iconoclasts. They just are iconoclasts when it comes to Anglicanism and Catholic Catholicism. But they themselves are very willing to set up new idols. And he just pushes that idol right over the edge and they hate him for it. And so he gets sent out, exiled to Rhode Island. They just don't want to hear it. And and I yep. I, I think Roger Williams is an American saint. You know, he's not a perfect guy. We used to say in graduate school at the end, he didn't even think his wife was saved. Um, you know, he was kind of annoying. But he made us think about our idol of church and state differently and opened our eyes towards a wider horizon. And everybody goes, oh, we never thought of that. What an idea. It's so much to the point where he's either banished or, of course, later embraced. So I think that that's part of what we're doing. But you just described it perfectly. And there's a name that we can put it put to that uh, from the mid-1600s mm-hmm. uh, because that's the exact story. Is he one of the people you're talking about in the reading group? I was planning on talking about him. He's on both of our uh, both of our desired. Li- that's why I've told. Like, you're the one writing the book about this. You can go. You can pick first. I will. Uh, but look, I have a list of Baptists because you know everyone knows everyone knows the depressing Baptists. But uh, and believe it or not, there's not one Falwell on my list of Baptist. Uh, I do believe Baptist that. saints. Mm-hmm. You know, though, here's one of the things I like as a side thing about the class that I'm going to find interesting is, you know, part of this is Diana and I thinking about the different themes for each week. And then who are the person stories we want to tell our children, our, our grandchildren, our people when handing on the faith. Uh, but one of the coolest parts about these kind of groups is uh, we also hear what everyone else's are, right? So it will be hard for Trip mm. not to come up. Like I can list off the Baptists ready for each one because if you're still a Baptist in the South and a white guy and weren't at January 6th, you're an endangered species. So, uh, you know, there's this, uh, like, I'm like, no, 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 we got some high quality material here. Carlisle Marnie, does anyone know who he is? Well, anyway, you know, like, I feel like there's this, like, list of this history and you want to give it on. And I find it odd that we have to contrive spaces to tell the people that animate and inspire us. These stories we tell, like, one of the bits, I've, I don't know if it'll make it on my opening talk, but I had a student that was in Edinburgh that was looking at the changing nature of our idols, right? And so found cool survey data of uh, 16 uh, to 18-year-olds naming the five most uh, influential people to them over time. And if you took people that are graduating high school 
and 2016 to 2018, something like that, to ones that graduated in 80s and between. What you saw shift is the likelihood that more than one of the five people or someone they know dropped dramatically. The likelihood that it was a public servant of any way, we're talking social worker, teacher, military hero, right? Like when you can think of people from World War II versus uh, Dick Cheney and signing his little uh, torture bottle for, uh, you know, like just thinking of all those things, uh, civic uh, heroes, uh, religious heroes, they all start dropping. The people that start growing up are it from uh, is the frequency of people with a, a large volume of wealth and entertainers and sports figures. And sadly, yeah. in the last two or three years, YouTube influencers. But YouTubers, they, yeah. Now, I don't think the frequency of 16 to 18-year-olds uh, saying Martin Luther King, Mother Teresa, uh, and those kind of things was because they just happened to be hanging out with other 16 to 18-year-olds and going, you know, when you think about who you want to be in life, what do you think? No, no, no. They were in communities of the people that know and love them the most and support them. And whose stories do they tell? And so that right. is like, to me, a signal that uh, as much as we current parents and those that raised us may be frustrated with the people that are there. They're there because of the very world we gave them. Right. Like we ha who are the people we prize and give attention to and these kind of things. So often I've uh, I, I look at things like that and go. It didn't happen in a vacuum. And what can we do to resist it? And I think part of it is something like this. Like Diana, Eve and I, we started talking about it. We're like, you're going to be so cool. We start collecting all the different ones people get. And maybe we find an artist, right? Where they make the pictures of like each theme, the person's head or bodies painted in some way where there's a symbol of what they did. And then we look at everyone in the group and we start to adding all their stories around and you could have like six little pictures, but then what are they? This group of people that do it together. Then it's all these people that inspired them. And it's like a, a collage of things. Why? Because when you walk by it, you want them to do what? Call out of you what you know is possible. And then what do you want your, your kids and grandkids to do? You want them to ask. What do you maybe even want your friends to do that you only watch sports with or complain about politics with? To go like, what's that? And then you say, have you heard about Roger Williams? <laughs> now, I know you're not going to believe this. He started the first Baptist church in America. And he did it. And then after he got done preaching, he got in a boat, rode down the river, and yelled at the Quakers for being wrong. But then he protected them legally. He actually bought the land from the Native Americans, and he thought the Puritans weren't really Christians and were going to hell. Now, I don't know about the hell part, but they did make it trendy. You know, like you could just see the conversations that happened. Those are just different. But how are they different? Because those stories call something out of us. And I think the stories we regularly tend to are these. I'm waving my smartphone at my friends. And uh, <laughs> and it is uh, coming up with ways that that during the State of the Union, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, looked like uh, the White Witch from Narnia, which was great. And I had a high quality tweet ready and I backed off and then I saw someone else do it. So I just liked it. I was like, I don't want to personally tweet this, but I do appreciate the humor. <laughs> She's handing out I Turkish delight. I think that these kinds of things are just. You know, it's so incredibly important. And Dan asked, you know, about like, who are some of your saints? And, you know, Roger Williams is clearly one of mine. And we're, Tripp and I are still a couple weeks out. And we're both 
extroverts and pretty spontaneous. So that means we haven't planned a whole lot of it. Yeah, that's okay. (laughs) And we are getting together and we'll be coalescing our lists and all the sorts of, or collating our lists pretty soon. What I think is interesting about this story that he just told, you know, how you switch up the narrative is really important. And we've seen a lot of this in our culture, just like in the last couple of years where people who were our heroes, we don't even have to go as far as the, like the Vanier story, um, which the, which I think is really so sad, but like so many people treated Elizabeth Holmes, right? Like she was a saint, you know, woman in tech invented this amazing thing that was going to heal millions of people. And she was a complete fraud. Yeah. And she's gone. Um, but a lot of those sort of tech saints and there's a real flash in the pan sort of quality about some of those stories. People rise up really quickly and then they crash down really fast. And one of the people that we talked about in our, our house when our daughter was growing up was Jonathan Daniels, who was an Episcopal priest. In the well, he wasn't even a priest. He was a seminarian in the 1960s, and he gave up going to his final year of seminary, and then he would have gone on just to become a priest to go and live um, in Alabama and work on um, registering people to vote. And so here he was, this very idealistic young man who's involved in freedom rides and just goes and moves into these situations of really abject black poverty in the South in the 1960s, very dangerous situation. And as it happens, he did die in a violent attack that was on him and uh, some black students that he was taking around who were helping him do register people to vote and he shielded um, one of the girls he was with uh, from a white supremacist shooting her and uh, he was the one who, who who died in the attack what was interesting about this story is first of all you don't hear about a lot of episcopalians giving up good parish calls in order to go and live in abject poverty in yeah. Alabama. <laughs> but the the other piece of it is, is the person he wound up shielding was Ruby Sales when she was 17 years old. And she wasn't she wasn't Ruby Sales. I mean, she was Ruby Sales, but yeah. she wasn't the she wasn't activist famous. hero. Yeah, yeah. yeah. She was a 17-year-old kid. And so she becomes she hmm. becomes a saint by having been functionally saved by a saint and we used to tell this story a lot to our daughter as an example of social justice and and heroism and so years later emma's in college and she meets ruby sales and she like almost starts crying wow because here's her hero a story that she's heard all her life from her parents and from her church and then She's in the flesh. And some, uh, I think all of us have probably, Dan, have you been to Wild Goose? I haven't yeah. been yet. I'm sure I will go. Yeah. Okay. She she uh, has been to Wild Goose a couple of times. And so some of us have also, you know, met her there or heard her preach there. And this is beautiful stuff. And these are the kinds of stories I think that are very attractive and deeply meaningful across generations you know when these when they're told well 
and when people just kind of grow up with these narratives. And honestly, no temptation ever in my daughter's life to worship Elizabeth Holmes. But Ruby Sales, yeah. I don't know if I sh- if I'm drawing too much from just a couple anecdotes or if this is actually a kind of a trend that you guys have noticed as well. But I noticed it since George Floyd that it appears to me to be more common to like paint a mural of the victims of this violence where we maybe previously would have had a mural of a civil rights activist, you know, maybe that would be the Malcolm X mural or something. And, you know, I I don't want to read too much into that. I don't know exactly all the various reasons for that, but I wonder if you think that some of this trouble with heroes, that everything can be problematized, makes it simpler to just go, well, this guy was a victim and his death was wrong and we can wish him to rest in power. And that's something we can all agree upon as opposed to if we put up someone who's alive or maybe someone who we are, we're actually saying, well, they're not a victim. They're the hero. Now we got to contest with all this disagreement. I don't know. Do, do you think that that might be indicative of some of the stuff that we've been talking about? Or am I just, am I finding something random that's probably not connected? I think that the mural response was something I never noticed till I was living in Los Angeles, where it's more frequent and it's become more frequent across the country. How do you gather to name grief when everyone that needs to gather are not going to show up in a funeral? So think. Right. Co- big, big collective grieving experiences. Yeah. That kind like, of thing. Yeah. I mean, I remember when Kobe Bryant died tracking all the murals that showed up around Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the when it goes to these kinds of protests, often the murals are in the spots where when the body has been removed and we aren't saying the victim's name, how do we say this story stays alive until the injustice gets a response? Yeah, I get all that. And I think it, that makes sense to me psychologically. And, and I think that that certainly like that's obviously playing an important and helpful role in sort of like, yeah, this this is a story that we, we need to keep alive because it's not over. Right. Like I, I totally get that. I don't, I don't remember seeing now, maybe that's a different kind of a change that, you know, say their name. Like it's the same thing with me too. And how, you know, victims of sexual assault are not going to be these like unnamed sort of, you know, Jane Doe's or whatever. And, and, and all of that is of course good. I'm just mm-hmm. wondering if there's also something about, it's also simpler and it's also not as con, it's not as contentious and that might be a subconscious thing. I don't know. I'm just wondering if you think there's a connection. It might be one of the sort of invisible currents of Christianity. That's sort of still under an undertow in our culture, because as just as you were saying all that, Dan is I thought back to the making of saints originally in Christianity, they were almost all victims. Martyrs. Yeah. Yeah, of some sort or another, you know, Mm -hmm. there were martyrs or people whose parents, you know, forced them to some marriage that they didn't want or people who gave up all everything they had in order to 
flee into the countryside in order to to battle their demons or what have you. Um, and so that goes back to a really profound piece of theological, you know, the theological foundation of Christianity is that our our prime hero is Jesus, who was a victim of empire. And um, hmm. I'm really taken by your comment. And I think that there's some level that there's a memory that still floats around American culture, which has hmm. been so engaged with Christianity for so long. Right. Uh, that might be actually a deeply religious impulse. And we haven't thought about it like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I do think like, I don't know the history here, but I would not be surprised if a lot of the true celebration of Martin Luther King Jr., for instance, did not occur until after he was killed. Right. So even where it's like, yes, he was, but he was also the most visible civil rights leader mm-hmm. while he was alive. He was, he was the guy most often on TV. Right. You know, so I, I am, I just, yeah, I, I think that's really interesting to, to, to compare to Jesus as well as almost all those early um, saints. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting. Yeah. There, this, I mean, this stuff is, this stuff goes deep psychologically. King's popularity was waning. Right. Because he was getting more radical as he was getting older. Once he came out publicly against the war and right. was yeah. a, uh, a critic of the economic system, then some of the allies disappeared because uh, right. including everyone into an exploitative militaristic nationalism uh, is is one thing. But uh, challenging the perverse power is another. Okay. Lent is the season where we follow Jesus and the disciples all the way to the cross. Bring it home Easter. trip Lent. Here we go. Okay. And, and when in thinking of Diana's story and then how the few times I've been present in at murals of mourning once in Edinburgh, when I didn't know the story or anything and you come upon it and it kind of begs you to learn it. Um, and then you pull out your phone and figure it out. And a child hit by a car holding her mother's hand by a drunk driver. And then you think of your kid. You're like, they're like those kind of things too. Deaths connected to deep injustice and such. When Lent is done well, you tend to the story of Christ and it ends with light slowly going out in the sanctuary till it's pitch dark. You retell the Last Supper with his friends. And then you're reading the betrayal, his torture and execution. The most powerful in a group religious experience um, I've had as an adult was Monday, Thursday. And it was the first Easter after the death of my grandparent, who was closest to me. I was new at a church and I'd never done their Monday, Thursday. And it's this giant meal soup supper and everyone brings their bowls from home and then people brought all this different stuff from their gardens and they make this giant stew and you're eating it and they have people up and they reenact the last supper and their 12 people are doing the 12 readings and each time a candle goes out and when it ends you're in a complete dark sanctuary and the choir begins to sing were you there when they crucified my lord which is a wonderfully powerful song but it's powerful because it asks us to tend to the cross, not as a symbol of our victory or a symbol of our religious identity. We're tending to it 
uh, to the actual body of Jesus and what happened to him and asks us, do you too want to go there? Because God went there, right? Like the cross is a symbol of deep solidarity with all those who've died on crosses, abandoned and forsaken and cross dead. And like in that sense, I remember there and going like, I feel the deep pain and loneliness because I'm thinking of the hope of Easter and the loss of a parent, a grandparent. And then I'm sitting there next to others that that wailing and loss is coming up. And we're sitting in a world where we're increasingly aware that we still put people on crosses. And it's if you do you want to go there and be seized that I think is what ha- what Lent has the ability for us to uh, to do for us is to take us into the materiality of divine solidarity in a way that the cross of Christ uh, becomes a, uh, a mirror to look at the deaths on crosses, real and metaphorical in our own world. And sometimes we are the one suffering and in pain. And there the cross of Christ, he's revealed to be our brother. In solidarity, God is the fellow sufferer who understands. And then for some of us, there are parts of us where we protect our privilege and our power and our possessions, and we're like Scrooge, and we get haunted by the death we've dealt in the past. We're waking up to the way we've crucified our Lord in the present, and we have the opportunity to rise up to new life. And, and that, that whole process is so easily something we distance and go, oh, he's risen indeed, zippity-doo-dah, heaven, forgiveness of sin. But Lent is attending to the ministry of Jesus and the challenge of the call and seeing him have solidarity, seeing him heal and bless and call out and lift up all of that, that if the whole narrative of divine passion revealed in the passion of the Christ comes to his death all alone. And that is the very place we go. This is the big secret that animates our whole faith. And, oh, if that's the only time we ever get to tell that story, it feels like a foreign one. But what if the body of Christ was not just risen to the right hand of the father, but it's been risen in the bodies of our sisters and brothers and mothers and fathers of the faith. And we've neglected to tell those stories. And in neglecting to tell them, we're neglecting the fact that the resurrection has become physical over and over in history through people's faithfulness. And it can become physical again in our living. And those stories, like our invitations, to me, that is like, that is exciting. And there's very few places and very few traditions where you get to tell that story. Deep solidarity and the power of resurrection is the promise of God's fidelity. To not just know the suffering, uh, but to say yes on the other side of our no. And I'm like, hell yeah. That's what I'm talking about. But that whole where you there was like one of those moments for me where I was like, oh, this is this is what I was ordained to. This is much yeah, like this is like seizes you the all thing, all of it sitting there. Speaking of what you were ordained to, I know better than to try and follow that up. Diana, do you have anything you'd like to add before we close well, out Trip here? Trip and I are really good at harmonizing and sort of springing off one yeah. another. And there are two murals that are dominant murals at the museum at the lynching memorial. 
And the two murals are a copy of that George Floyd mural, which I think was, that's Dan, that was just a great insight. The idea that victims have become, in effect, public saints. Mm-hmm. But the other mural is a copy of a mural that's here uh, where I live. It's actually over on the eastern shore of Maryland, about 40 miles away from my house. And it's a giant mural of Harriet Tubman reaching down into, a, I mean, I'm doing it actually just like the mural. She's reaching forward down into a place where someone is obviously hiding right. and she's offering a hand to pull someone out and you know what the story is. She's going to run away. And see, yeah. both of those stories are stories of sainthood and and also victimhood. And I think that one of the things that I'm really looking forward to hearing from trip and also in my own exploration of this of this topic is the different kinds of saints that there are and both mm-hmm. of those saints have a place in what that story that trip just told there's the george floyd vision of sainthood which is actually the victim christ crucified uh becomes the martyr and a kind of saint that we christians have always have always seen as morally beautiful as mm-hmm. crazy as that seems but then there's the other kind and that's the victim who becomes the one who turns around and rescues others who are under the threat of victimhood and so that becomes the harriet tubman kind of image and kind of I the think resurrected you, christ uh, yeah really because having it is, defeated death or whatever you know that's right. And found freedom and liberation. But instead of walking away and just celebrating, woohoo, I'm free, um, actually takes that freedom and goes back and invests it in the freedom of others. And so that's another image of sainthood where victimhood is is transformed yep. into uh, self-giving liberation, not not a kind of individual success, but the making of the new community. And so I I am really excited that that Trip and I are going to be looking at these different kinds of stories and pulling out these kinds of threads. I, I can't believe you so beautifully just linked this entire topic trip to to Lent. That that's like the most perfect frame for Chef's what we're kiss. doing. Yeah, chef's kiss. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, I'm excited. I'm excited about it. And thank you, Dan, for letting us give you the real strong pitch. Now you, too, can go to EmptyAlters.com. And Alters does not have an E in it, by the way. A-R. I know that. I'm dyslexic, and I bought the URL. Oh, no, you didn't. (laughs) I have both, though. You bought both. Okay. Yeah, 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 I'm just saying. (laughs) That's great. Uh, Diana, Tripp, thank you guys both for being here. Josh will put every link in the show notes for listeners. And uh, what a great conversation. Thanks so much. Mm -hmm.